following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Do children know what common sense is? Have you heard that expression? Uh, Common sense are things that we ought to know simply as boys and girls, men and women created in God's image. So common sense would work like this. You put your finger in a candle and the fire burns you and you know that not to touch a flame, right? Unless you're not all there. You you know uh, that the fire that burns you once is going to burn you a second time and so you stay away from it. And there's many things in life by which we operate on the principle of of common sense. It's basically a a practical judgment about life. There's also a moral common sense. Now, what might that be? Well, that's the conscience. The conscience is God's moral compass he's put within us. It is the basis of an ethical or moral common sense as it testifies to us of the ways of God and and exercises judgment on our own ways. Uh, And we should respond to conscience then uh, in the path of obedience and and submission. So common sense, conscience, I'll put them together as human experience. What we as men and women, what we as boys and girls can know about life. What Job teaches here is that common sense actually is a means to help us understand the mind of God and to confirm the teaching of Scripture. For that's what he's doing in this last paragraph. In chapter 21, Job is answering, again, the accusations of the friends, this sweeping judgment that uh, the wicked all must be punished in this life and the righteous all must be blessed in this life. And Job has argued from many different ways. He's argued from... um, Uh, the revelation has come down through the ages. He's argued from natural revelation, uh, but now he turns his attention uh, to basically an argument from common sense, argument from human experience. So what I want to show you here is, is that human experience will correct our wrong thinking by confirming the testimony of Scripture. Human experience will correct wrong thinking by confirming the testimony of Scripture. It doesn't work apart from Scripture, but it will confirm the testimony of Scripture. So uh, we're going to look at the, the reproof of the prejudice, and then we're going to get the testimony of human experience, and then we're going to consider the, the conclusion or the result of that testimony of human experience. So the reproof, the testimony, the conclusion are result. Well, in uh, verse 27 or verses 27 and 28, we've got another reproof of prejudice. So Job says to these men, Behold, I know your thoughts and the plans by which you would wrong me. For you say, Where is the house of the nobleman and where is the tent, the dwelling places of the wicked? Job is saying, I know exactly now as I am giving you these arguments how you're thinking. And your thinking is clouded by prejudice. 
that prejudice is really set forth uh, in what he says in verse uh, 28. Where is the house of the nobleman? Where is the tent, the dwelling places of the wicked? Now, up to this point, I have not come right out and accused Job of being wicked, though passage after passage, speech after speech, full of innuendos, Job's the only person of whom they would be speaking. Now, in the next chapter, Eliphaz will actually accuse Job of specific sins. But obviously, here is the nobleman, the greatest man of the East, and his estate has been destroyed. So when he says, I know your wicked schemes, for you say, where is the house of the nobleman? Where is the tent, which is simply explained here, the dwelling place of the wicked? Well, the question is, it's been destroyed. And you remember how, how their reasoning works, uh, that uh, God always destroys the estate of the wicked in this life. Job's estate is destroyed in this life. Therefore, Job is a wicked man. That is the system. That is the health, wealth, and prosperity approach that these men take to all of God's actions in this life. They're materialists. They, they think like Sadducees. They don't think of anything beyond that. And Job has been arguing against them. But he says, I know your prejudice. I know that you just cannot see outside your own little world. And you, the plans then by which you would wrong me. Their schemes, their evil thinking, their accusations, their arguments, one built upon another. And once again, he simply, but briefly, rebukes these attacks on him as acts of ignorant prejudice. Now, you and I need to be aware of ignorant prejudice. We, we spoke a few weeks ago, didn't we, about not judging a book by its cover. And we tend to do that. We tend to make a quick assessment of someone, and our whole attitude to them is colored after that. What these men with Job, we're guilty of that, aren't we? We can just simply have a, a, a prejudice, a, a predetermined um, attitude about someone, the way they looked, what they wore, what something they said one time. Uh, I don't know, the, their nose. There's all kinds of irrational reasons why we do this, but we develop a prejudice. Let me just expand on that, though. Gossip is a way that we are prejudiced against others. It's one of the reasons why you must never listen to gossip. I experienced that in the past two days. I had someone say something in passing about a person whom I barely knew, but was here for the wedding. And I didn't comment on that. I didn't build on that. But you know, when I saw that person yesterday, what I was thinking, I was prejudiced against them. Not a concrete reason in the world outside of what somebody said, negatively and passive. This is why we've got to guard our speech so much more carefully than we do. That's why you must guard your speech then on the internet and on Facebook. We say something without thinking, we hit the send button and suddenly, we have created a whole environment for prejudice against someone, particularly against a child of God. And so we must seek the Spirit's grace, guard our hearts against prejudice, to recognize that it is an absolute evil and sin, as Job rebukes it here. But now, you see what Job is doing. He now appeals 
to a third level of evidence in verses uh, 29 to 33. Now you remember, he, in this chapter, first of all, established two realities. That the wicked prosper in this life and the righteous suffer in this life. He concluded that by saying, but I'm not going to be envious of the wicked. And then in the next section, preceding what we have right here, he said, um, the wicked will be judged in the afterlife. They might not be judged in this life, but God, so he's asserting God's justice. So what he's basically doing here now is proving that assertion from the testimony of other people, those whom he calls the wayfaring men. Have you not, verse 29, have you not asked wayfaring men? Do you not recognize their witness, their, their signs and tokens they bear? For the wicked um, is reserved for the day of calamity. They'll be led forth to the day of fury. Who will confront him with his actions and who will repay him for what he has done? When Job asked them the question, have you not asked wayfaring men? He now is making an appeal to the broader evidence of human experience. The wayfaring man is, is the man that doesn't live in their little parochial area. No, he's a man who's traveling through, a man who's experienced other cultures. Perhaps he's come from Canaan, a man who was greatly influenced by the patriarchs or some other place yet where there was still the knowledge of God. He said, you know, you guys are judging all of this on the basis of your narrow-minded prejudice, but just stop for a moment. Let's ask the men of the world not in a sense worldly men, but men who've been in the world, who have had experience. Let's ask them their testimony. That's what he's doing in verse 29. Recognize their witness, that there's a truth to their tokens, to the signs of which they are going to bring. That's a very important principle for us. You know, as we study Scripture, uh, we all have blinders. Now, the first place we remove the blinders is by doing what our confession teaches us and comparing Scripture with Scripture. So what we say here must be consistent with what God says throughout the Word of God. Now, the next step that we use is to get outside of ourselves, stand on somebody else's platform, and that's the advantage of what we're going to call historical theology. Pastor Groff and I are reading them. Uh, uh, Muller's four volumes, and, and one of the important things to the uh, Reformed Orthodox was the testimony of the church through the ages. And we're weak on that today, you know, we think this is the, uh, the end all and do all of all biblical and doctrinal knowledge. But no, God has worked progressively through the church, unfolding uh, understandings of his truth. And we need to understand that. Now, we're very blessed because we're in a confessional church. And thus, we understand that our confession is the summary of what the church has believed through the centuries. That is the second corrective to our interpretation of Scripture. But now we come to this third. Our interpretation of Scripture needs to be consistent with what I'm going to call human experience. I'll come back to this, but simply say this now. The Bible is not unreasonable. Okay? Now, the Bible is full of deep truths because God is incomprehensible. But the Bible's not unreasonable. The Bible doesn't say that black is white or that four is five, does it? 
No, the Bible has incomprehensible mysteries, but the Bible is never unreasonable. Thus, the Bible is going to be consistent with normal, not blinded, but normal human experience and the testimony of conscience. That's what Job's doing here. And he takes two things now from uh, these witnesses, the, the wayfaring men. And, and the first is the certainty of God's justice after death. Verse 30 and 31, for the wicked is reserved for the day of calamity. They will be led forth at the day of fury. Who will confront him with his actions and who will repay him for what he's done? Now, he's talking here about the very arrogant and proud wicked man who is, in a sense, above all correction and reproof. He's talking about a tyrant, a tyrant who is uh, nobody can correct. And the world today is full of tyrants, uh, people like uh, Putin and Xi and, and the president of Cuba and uh, so many Latin American countries and uh, Islamic tyrants. Uh, and, and you couldn't go up to one of these men if you were even in their group of, of counselors and correct them. Correct them would probably you know, be losing your head. So that's what he's saying, is that, well, what happens then with these men? Well, this is what he says, and this is that they're going to be subjects to God's justice. That's what he says now. In verse 30, the wicked is reserved for the day of calamity that will be led forth to days of fury. Now, the ESV wrongly translates this, that they'll be um, preserved from the day of fury. No, this word led forth uh, has a very peculiar meaning. It's actually used in Psalm 45 for a bride being led to her husband. But more importantly for us, it's used in Isaiah 53, 7 for our Savior who was led as a lamb to the slaughter. It's a word that implies being led to the day of fury, being led to God's wrath and judgment. Preserve now, exempt now, as they think they are, as we're saying in Psalm 49, but the certainty of the testimony of the men of the world who have their eyes open of human experience and of conscience is that there's a judgment coming. This is the conscience of the unregenerate. In their conscience, they know that they're going to stand before God. They know they're going to be judged. And they'll suppress that knowledge. But they know that. And that's the testimony of the world. That no, they're not all judged in this life, but God is just. And they're going to be judged. Now, I know all of you here. I have no reason to think anybody here today is not converted. But if you're not converted, understand... This is the reality that even now your conscience bears testimony to you that there is a day of judgment coming. You're going to give an answer to God for the deeds done in the flesh. As we sang in our, our hymn of thanksgiving, there's only one safe place to be in that day of judgment. And that is covered by the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the first testimony of the world, of human consciousness, of common sense, is God is just. I mean, think about Paul on the Isle of Malta. You boys remember that story Paul was shipwrecked? 
And then they made a fire to warm their clothes, warm themselves. And what happens? Paul's picking up sticks. He picks up a poisonous viper, collapses onto his hands. And do you remember what the people thought? <laughs> he's a murderer. He escaped drowning, but he's going to answer. You see, even the pagans have this concept of justice, that men are going to be held accountable for their actions. And that's what the wayfaring man testifies. That's what human experience testifies. Now, the second testimony basically confirms the first, and that is all are going to die until the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. So verses 32 and 33, while he's carried to the grave, uh, they'll keep watch over his tomb. The clods of the valley will gently cover him. Moreover, all men will follow after him, while countless ones go before him. Now, there's some, he says, who try to sanitize their death, and we also sang of that in, in Psalm 49. That's the idea of the word here, sentinels or watchmen over the tomb. They might actually have had guards posted there. People did that. And, of course, uh, they built great monuments to themselves to preserve them or get them to the afterlife, and thus the, the pyramids of, of Egypt, or statues to... Uh, Preserve their memory as Lenin and Stalin had statues all over, uh, not just uh, Russia, but the, the Soviet Union. Um, and so there'll be those that try to sanitize their death, but they're still going to die. In fact, the second half then says that death is the great equalizer. So yes, the clods of the valley will gently cover them, um, and all men will follow after him as countless ones have gone before him. And we know that death is because of sin. But once again, the testimony of conscience is the same thing. So our meditation, it's pointed to man wants to die, and after that, what? The judgment. The certainty of death, the equality of death, is an expression of the certainty of judgment. Why would you, if you're merely a matter of matter, <laughs> cells, blood, a, a brain like a beast, why would you be afraid to die? You know, is, it, is that lamb, led of the slaughter, afraid to die? No. No. You're afraid to die. Men fear death because of the judgment of God concerning which their conscience testifies. They'll suppress it. I read, I wish I could remember exactly how it was put, but it was a person who attended Rousseau and some other atheist at their death and said, I hope never again to be in the presence of such men when they die. The wailing and the howling of these men who so arrogantly opposed God. I remember in the case of a dear relative of mine who boasted about not being afraid of death and, and by mere willpower, humanly speaking, lived about two days after she should have been dead because the king of terror was coming. And that's the testimony of the conscience of the unregenerate. And they should fear death. But it's not our testimony, is it? As Paul says in 2 Timothy, the first chapter, that our Savior abolished death and brought in life immortal. 
And so, yes, that's going to come for us as well. And as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, young and old alike, some soon, some many years later from now, but it's coming unless Christ returns. But we need not fear death because Christ for us has abolished death and he has clothed us in his righteousness so that we may then stand at that judgment seat and give an answer for the deeds done in the flesh, knowing, yes, we've done these things, but we are pardoned for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Job pushes back now with his testimony from the world, a, a common sense human uh, experience, a, a testimony of conscience, of the certainty of God's justice, even if it's not in this life, which they insisted it had to be, and he was speaking against God's justice if he denied that, and that death would bear testimony to that. Which brings us then to uh, Job's conclusion. He asked this question in verse 34. How then will you vainly comfort me? For your answers remain full of falsehood. They've come under the pretense of comforting Job. But quickly, because of their preconceived notions, because of their prejudice, they couldn't comfort Job outside of saying, if you'll repent, as Zophar says at the end of, of chapter 20, if you repent, God will restore you. And that just creates a dilemma for Job, doesn't it? He has nothing really of which to repent. Yes, daily sins, but not the kind of stuff of which they're accusing him. And, and yet that's where they're locked in. How can they comfort him? Because their answers are full of falsehood. And he's once again demonstrated now from human experience the falsehoods of their answers. And we, this should help us understand how to deal with the world around us. We can do with the world exactly what Job does with these men. And that is, we can appeal to conscience. Well, sometimes... You might be afraid of the people that are really intelligent, have all the, all the arguments and all the answers, and, and you're really afraid to witness to them because you couldn't answer their arguments. And when you boys and girls grow up and some of you will go to university, you're going to have professors that are going to uh, treat you that way and, and awful arrogance and everything else. You don't have to answer their arguments, okay? Because there is no real atheist in all of the world now are in hell. Because every person knows there's a God. Every person. I don't care how many arguments they put together, they know there's a God, just as the wayfarer man knew there was justice, and that is where you appeal. You don't have to answer them. You can say, you know, you know there's a God. Your conscience bears testimony to your God. You're trying to suppress that knowledge of God. You're an idolater because of that, but you know there's a God, and you know you're going to give an answer to him. Now, they might argue with you until they're blue in the face, but you know, you're kind of like the doctor. Now, I don't imagine Zoe's doctor pressed too much as he asked her where the pain was, but I know that at times, if you've got an attack of appendicitis, you're going to press around, and does it hurt here? No. Does it hurt? How? It hurt right there, you see. He knew where to press. And you know where to press. You don't need to be afraid of anybody around you because you know where the sore spot is. And in our, our preaching, our evangelism, we need to make much more use of conscience than we do. It's a great ally to us. And we need to understand our own conscience, but also 
the use of conscience. And this is why that Pastor Groff and I and the other men from Greenville Seminary are committed to what we call experimental or experiential preaching. I hope you notice that when we preach, we're asking you also to measure the truth by your own experience, right? Well, I'll appeal to your conscience, or I'll say you know this, uh, or your own experience will join in and say, yes, that's true, that's what I am, whether it's in terms of, of a probing exhortation or, or comfort. And this is a very important part of preaching. It's greatly neglected today, but again, this text lays the foundation for, for this approach uh, to preaching. And so Job teaches us here how to actually use the testimony of the world. Human experience will correct wrong thinking and confirm the testimony of Scripture. Human experience will correct wrong thinking and confirm the testimony of Scripture. I'm going to give you two practical uses now of this from our standards. I've already referred to the reasonableness of the Word of God. And the second is the, and I'll explain the term, the perspicuity of the Word of God. The Bible is reasonable. It does not contradict common sense or human experience. It'll be beyond things that we can grasp. But when the thing is unnatural, we know it was a miracle. We know the power, the Bible reveals the power of God. So if an axe head floats in the water or a man rises from the dead, that's not unreasonable. Not if you know God who's all-powerful. But as I said, the Bible is reasonable, and in fact, then our confession appeals to our reason in affirming its authority. So in chapter 1, in paragraph 5, as it talks about the authority of Scripture, we may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem of Holy Scripture. But notice this, and the heaviness of the matter the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvations, many other incomparable excellencies, and the entire perfection thereof are arguments. Arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. You're using your mind at that point, right? Now, yes, you're regenerate. But God expects you now to read these things and say, well, yes, I understand that. The Bible is more excellent than any book I've ever read. It is, it's, it's more profound. It, it does these things. And that's part. Now, it goes on to say that the ultimate testimony authority of Scripture is the self-authenticating nature of Scripture. As you read it, the Holy Spirit bears witness to you. But notice the reasonableness of Scripture. Don't be afraid to use your minds. They're illumined by the Holy Spirit. That's why it's important. You know how to think. It's why it's important you teach your children logic. So they know how to think. So they can approach the word of God uh, and deal with the world around them. So the scriptures are reasonable. We see that from the testimony of the wayfarer. But the second, the scriptures are perspicuous. Now that's simply a big word, but a necessary word to mean that they're absolutely clear in what they teach. So paragraph seven, all things in scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor like clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned but the unlearned in a due use of ordinary means may attain a sufficient understanding of them. And we're talking about the regenerate here. 
you probably have had the experience, or known others who were unconverted and tried to read the Bible, and you know, you'd get a living Bible, and they thought they understood the Bible. They didn't. They were reading a commentary. The Bible is a closed book to the unregenerate to some degree. But when you're regenerate, the Bible's clear. And the Bible is clear for one reason, or one of the reasons is this testimony of human experience. The Bible does not contradict the reality of everyday life. It does not contradict common sense, and thus any attempt to interpret the Bible that goes through a whole list of mental gymnastics immediately should be under suspicion. I had one acquaintance who studied at a liberal seminary. He had a professor. 14 steps to prove from Scripture the ordination of women. Now, immediately, your radar should go up. If the Bible is clear, so the one who runs may understand it, anything that needs 14 steps to prove uh, something that Scripture apparently contradicts is twisting Scripture. You see that? You can know that by your own spiritual common sense. The same is true then with respect to Genesis chapter 1. I was teaching Sunday school class a few years ago at a church downtown and on Genesis 1, and so I gave them a sign. I want you to go home and read this chapter two or three times, come back next week and tell the class what it means. Not one person came back and said anything, but it means that God created all things by the word of his power in the space of six days. It was all very good. Every one of them. But that wasn't strange. If you read the words, what else comes to mind? God, if you have to go through all these mental, either evolution, which is full of prejudice, I mean, after it's been proven, disproven scientifically, they still blindly cling to it. And Romans 1 explains that because otherwise they have to admit there's a God. And they would rather be absolutely foolish than to admit there's a God. And instinctively, we all know that we do not bear any relation to a gorilla or a chimpanzee. And instinctively, you all know whether you are a man or a woman. But it's also true with our Reformed interpretations of Genesis chapter 1, or within the Reformed community. As Ruling Elder one time said in a Presbyterian, why is it that only ministers understand these uh, figurative approaches to Genesis chapter 1? Why is it that, a, that a, even an unlearned layperson, but a learned layperson can't read Genesis 1 and walk away? Well, yes, this means exactly what it says. If you've got to go through all of these hoops of explanation that are unclear to the great majority of believers in the church, then be suspicious. Well, we hear the objection. Yes, but the, but the Bible says that the, the sun is the center of the universe. Our science says, but the Bible says that the, the sun stood still. Well, again, does not common sense answer that? Doesn't it? If you looked at the weather last night uh, on AccuWeather on your phone, what did it say? It said the sun was going to rise this morning at whatever time it was, 7 o'clock? Common sense tells you that there are certain ways we speak about the universe that to this day we still speak. That's no objection to what I'm saying against the arguments 
about Genesis chapter 1. So, my dear friends, you are all able, as you are born again, you boys and girls are able to understand the Word of God. Now's the time to develop the habits of reading with confidence what the Bible says. You use your catechism to help you understand it. And you're under the preaching of the Word, which is the greatest means of grace. But you can read the Word for profit. You men do that with your families. Don't be afraid. You may instruct your families profitably in the Word of God. Just prepare yourselves to do so. That's the testimony of the wayfaring man. Let us pray. Oh, Holy One, we thank you for uh, this interesting passage of Scripture that opens up to us a whole other avenue with respect to how you would have us think and, and make judgments. And we ask that you help us, Lord, to understand the, the practicality of this and uh, the importance of human experience of conscience in understanding you and your ways. May your spirit bless this truth to all of us now, for Christ's sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.